Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, innovation, regulation, and Airbnb. So, Richard, Airbnb, this sort of innovative startup, they've made a big splash in just a few years really by allowing people to rent out space essentially like it's a hotel room to people who are looking for for short-term accommodations. And that, as you write in your new piece at Defining Ideas, is not going down well with the attorney general in New York State. What's his problem with Airbnb? Well, you never know what the, the unstated problem is, but essentially what he has done is he's clearly upset about the tax issue on which I think he may have a point, raises a bunch of issues having to do with fire control, which I don't think are the point, but then gets himself involved in a little bit of social planning and starts to worry about the fact that the distribution of units, in fact, is um, concentrated in Manhattan on the east side, the, the lower east side, and, and on the west side where you would expect it to be, and in those parts of Brooklyn which are close to to Manhattan where you'd expect it to be. Um, and he thinks it's an imbalance. Uh, he's upset about the fact that many of these units are operated by single proprietors who essentially treat them as though they're quasi-hotels in one fashion or another. And so he kind of has the de Blasio sentiment on progressivism, which is that the distribution of these things is not what he regards as wholesome or sensible. And so he wants to some extent to shut it down. Um, now, the question then is how do you want to think about these things and I think really the only way we could do it is take all the various issues one at a time. Uh, he has a point to two uh, but generally speaking, I think he misunderstands how you ought to handle the innovation of new technology. Let's take up front the, the one issue that you mentioned up front where you think he may have a point which is on the issue of taxation. Explain what the, the problem is there from the attorney well, general's point of yeah, view. I mean the, the problem with respect to taxation, um, the – is that uh, if you are running a hotel type establishment, you have to pay an occupancy tax in New York City, which is something over 5%. If you're running this stuff through Airbnb, uh, what happens is you don't pay the tax. So there are two problems with this. Uh, one is that the city loses revenues that it's otherwise entitled to. Um, and secondly, it gives the Airbnb operators an unfair advantage over the regular business. To give you an example, it's not all that dissimilar to the situation where the stores that border on a main street, say, in Berkeley, California, have to pay real estate taxes, whereas the booths that are set up across the way from them are generally escaped from taxation. Uh, but the taxes fund services which are working to the benefit of both sides. The issue here is not the desirability of an occupancy tax, which I think you can contest. The question only has to do with its parity. And generally speaking, unless there's some real reason why the differences ought to be allowed, I think that one has to be able to deal with that. This should not be an insuperable problem. What we know most about the internet is its incredible technical flexibility and versatility and what one can do is to insist that all of these transactions and New York City residences that run through the Airbnb system have a reserve for the tax that's going to be imposed. It will reduce the number of units that are going to fall within the system which is a bad thing all things considered but if the tax is justified uh, then this is no more a complaint that they have than the hotels would have when their occupancy goes down by virtue of the occupancy tax. So on the occupancy tax, it probably ought to be all or nothing instead of just some. So help us understand the legal framework here. Traditionally, what are the differences between the rights of 
an individual property owner who's, who's renting out residential space in a scenario like you have with Airbnb versus you know the company that is is renting out hotel rooms. What kind of constraints are there on the individual property owner in this kind of situation? Well, first of all, one has to understand that the individual property owners need not be tenants. They could also be owners of their own homes or in fact, they could be landlords. And to the extent that they are individual entrepreneurs with their own property, they don't have a landlord to contend with whose interests may be adverse with their own. And so under those circumstances, the appropriate rule is you let these people start moving in unless you can show that there's some serious disability. Now, what the uh, mayor or, or Mr. Schneiderman will say is that there's some kind of zoning issues that are associated with these things. But generally speaking, if you're talking about small numbers of people coming in and out of a place and just living there, it doesn't seem to me that that's a very serious objection. And if it turns out there is, as he claims, a technical violation of some of these zoning ordinances because these are rentals for less than 30 days and not long-term continuous situation, what he ought to do is basically urge a change in the zoning law so as to allow the technology to go forward unless you can show that short occupancy is to some extent um, highly correlated with some degree of nuisance or disturbing behavior. And there's no evidence in this report to make any of those correlations visible. So in that side of the thing, I think it's perfectly okay. When you're starting to deal with landlords, I think the situation is really quite different. First of all, there's no question that the landlord should have some degree of control over what tenants can do going in and out of the building. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is the landlords have to maintain the common areas. And if it turns out that you get people into these buildings who don't know their way, they put extra burdens on doormen and everybody else. And in addition, there's a real question of tort liability because somebody who comes in to the place, whether through Airbnb or pretending to be there through Airbnb, may in fact commit some kind of criminal act on the premise. And under modern law in New York, as in most other places, a landlord can be responsible if it turns out things like this happen. In addition, of course, the Airbnb tenants, since they're very close together with other people who don't want them, can create all sorts of internal disturbances, coming in late at night, making noises, popping beer cans, leaving litter in the halls, a thousand or other things, and a landlord has a legitimate interest to stop those. So the way in which this ought to be done is that the landlord should be able to set out in the lease the terms under which Airbnb people will come in. It's not a trivial decision for that landlord to make. Because if you allow them, and now you're exposing this new bit of capital, uh, the tenant will be able to get more money, which means that the landlord will be able to charge a higher rent. But on the other hand, the landlord also internalizes the losses that take place on the other side if other people become fidgety because they don't like the disturbances. So he's going to get all the pluses and minuses and will in general make the right kind of decision. Now, it could be an all-in or an all-out, or it could say, you know, we're going to allow you to do these things, but only for a week and so forth. Then the question is, once the landlord sets the lease terms, I think those ought to be unquestionably upheld, how do you enforce it? It is basically impossible to try to go around in a large building which has a 100 or a 1,000 people in it or a complex and knock on doors to see who is or is not an Airbnb tenant. Uh, so what you have to do is essentially go back to Airbnb and give them a kind of an ultimatum. Uh, they're allowed to operate in New York City only if they honor the blacklist that landlords put up there. And then the landlord, of course, may be asked to show that he has the prohibitions and the leases, which is not going to be too difficult to do. So what you do is you knock out 
not the middleman on all of these services so that it cannot complete transactions where there's a landlord veto. Now, if you do it that way, you don't have to have a per se rule in the city. Uh, those buildings which are amenable to this, it will happen, and those which are not, it won't. And one of the things you like about this system is that you don't know when I mean you don't know, Troy, I mean I don't know or you don't know exactly which of these buildings are appropriate for Airbnb tenants and which of them are not. Um, one of the things that we know happens in the city all the time right now is that when college friends come into town, they sleep on the living room floor of their friends from many years ago. Um, it happens with all of my children when they were younger. and My youngest son still happens today. And nobody seems to think that it's a terrible situation. But, of course, if they know each other in advance, the risks associated with that are going to be lower than they are in the other place. So essentially, I think what happens is private ordering land by, landlord by landlord with a Lincoln uh, to Airbnb is the way to handle this rather than to do it through a zoning ordinance, which is now much more costly because what it does is it kills a lot of transactions that could benefit the city in terms of not only the occupancy packs, but all the money that these people spend by going to various things in the city, restaurants, museums, games, and all the rest of that stuff. I mean, I think one ought to welcome it so long as you get the, pri the right private infrastructure uh, for this particular activity to go forward. Richard, I want to get you to expand on a point that you make late in your piece for Hoover. You make it specifically um, as it applies to New York, but you can also see it in a lot of places like uh, Southern California, for instance, and that's the necessity of having a more permissive system in place for the development of new housing. And we're talking here about places that are in demand, so we can assume that ev even the market rate for housing may include a little bit of a premium relative to other parts of the country. But a lot of the extraordinarily high cost of living in these areas is driven by public policy, isn't it? Yes, I mean, one of the great ironies is that the single most dangerous policy with respect to access is a cross between the zoning restrictions on the one hand and the affordable care of housing mandates on the other. And what the zoning restrictions do is essentially for anti-competitive reasons, they keep people from building houses in neighborhoods, which are similar to or indeed identical to those that people already have there. And this basically produces an artificial shortage in the amount of housing because these zoning restrictions are not based upon upon the sense that these people are going to be menaces to the community. It's based on the sense that, you know, people here would like to keep the densities low and so forth. Now, once you start to do that, you then get this vicious cycle because you've restricted uh, the supply of housing. It means it raises the rent, which means that people with modest means are going to be on the bubble, particularly if they have short-term leases. So what you then try to do is to subsidize them by having affordable housing. And the way this works, for example, is you will have a building which may have three tiers of housing if it's large enough. There'll be an affordable level at the bottom. Then there'll be a middle income level somewhere between. And then there'll be what they call market rates at the top. And what happens under these circumstances, you have to have immensely high costs to qualify people for the various tiers. You do so on the basis of documentation, which is it's difficult to obtain. People change jobs. They can't show you that they've had two pay stubs and things of that sort. Uh, you give them a lifetime lease, basically, given all the politics in New York City, and yet their income position can fluctuate one way or the other. So the cost of processing these applications can be 20 or 30, 30 hours worth of time on the part of the landlord or his staff or the city and so forth. Just a 
big mess. And what you don't need any of this stuff. If you expanded the supply of housing, um, market rates would start to drop and you could get rid of the apparatus and you'd have more people living in the city and they would have a greater mix in terms of stuff because as the fancier units get developed, people who will move up a step and they'll vacate those which are a little bit less desirable and the market will come into equilibrium. What New York City does is it thinks it stops the defects of the zoning system by introducing affordable housing but as ever these defects, they compound one to the other. It's not as though they cancel each other out. And right now, the mayor is faced with a serious problem that he wants to have really tough affordable housing stuff so as to please his people. But the deals that he wants to put into place are sufficiently tough that no landlord will do it. Because even if you allow a landlord to charge whatever it wants at the market rates, there is a market limitation. And if the subsidies required at the bottom are too expensive, then the market rates at the top won't be able to make them up. Right now, for example, there are disputes in New York City as to what kind of housing you put in your Central Park. And it would be absolutely absurd to put in affordable housing Uh, because uh, those units rent for, say, 25% of what the fancier places do, and the tenants there are not in their natural habitat. They're not going to shop at Bergdorf Goodman, which is down the block and so forth. So even if you wanted to keep the kind of program, better to use cash than in-kind subsidies in order to do it so you could put the right units in the right kinds of neighborhood. And the thought that somehow or other you could cure all the problems of the city by getting tough on Airbnb is really quite crazy. What the city has to do here is in so many other areas is engage in a general principle of market liberalization. So final question, Richard. We talked last week in a very different context about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, another example of deep government involvement in housing markets. From a classical liberal perspective, uh, is there any legitimate role for government to be playing in housing? What are the imperatives for good government in this sector? Well, I mean obviously the same requirements that go to everything else apply here. You have to have a system of strong contract law so that when tenants enter into leases, they can't basically walk with impunity and landlords can't take advantage of them afterwards. And for that, you usually need a series of summary procedures to make sure these things are sorted out correctly because the sums are too small to require full court hearing. Then you also need to have a tort law in place so that what happens is if there are nuisances that are committed either by tenants against landlords, you get quick evictions or by people in one building against people in another building, you could then enjoin these kinds of situations. And these are actions which were allowed in medieval times and in Roman times as well. Uh, That's the kind of thing that you want to stop. Third, what you want to do is to have a series of coherent covenants so that you can restrict the kinds of people who come into the building so it's better to be able to match the building residents with the kinds of various sorts of um, public accommodations. In my own view, I think all of the legislation which is designed to uh, deal with non-discrimination in housing is actually a giant mistake. Um, What it does is it allows the government to go after landlords who use neutral policies and to attack them on the grounds of disparate impact of one form or another uh, so that the system becomes a tax on pretty much everybody and reduces the total supply of housing in general. So I think what happens is land differs from, say, various kinds of market commodities because neighbors are different from strangers and the locational externalities are likely to be larger. And once you understand that and you make the rules that are adapted for that situation, then I think you don't have to do the rest of this stuff, which means if you look at New York City's situation with its order process, the Uniform Land 
land use review process that they have in place. The city essentially overregulates. Just make it very simple. In New York City, you want to put up a major project. You're talking two to three years of permitting through various kinds of situations and committees and bodies of review. You go into Texas, and three weeks later, you get your building permit, and they make it very clear to you. If this building's about to shut down, you know, fall down, we're going to shut you down. I mean, we're not going to allow you to build things that are going to topple on innocent people and so forth. But the contrast is such that in New York, the single most important feature for building is the permit process and the regulatory process. And in Texas, it's marketing, architecture, and construction. We know which world is going to produce larger housing supplies. We know where the rents are going to be insane and where they're not. So a city like Austin can grow and the rents can be relatively stable. And their problem is infrastructure. Uh, That's not yet the New York City problem. New York City's problem is this massive constipation, which leads to the massive underutilization of existing housing and prevents the creation of new housing. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.